The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hitting each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in-shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free, straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. In this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Tony Rice. Tony's hometown is Brunswick, Georgia. While at West Point, Tony participated in football, track, handball, and the National Society for Black Engineers. Tony was an F Company 1st Regiment and Hotel Company 2nd Regiment. Tony branched and served at Fort Campbell, Kentucky as a PL, the UN Security Force in South Korea as an adjutant, Fort Stewart, Georgia as a commander, West Point as a tactical officer, Fort Belvoir, Georgia in support of USAID, South Korea as a Brigade S3, Virginia State University in Richmond, Virginia as a PMS, and Savannah, Georgia as the 6th ROTC Brigade XO. Tony deployed to Iraq with the 101st in 2003 2004, 3rd ID in 2007 2008, and deployed to Afghanistan in 2015 to 2016, where he served in 2016. Tony served as a platoon leader, rifle and support, company commander HHSC, and rifle company commander, and battalion S3 and XO while deployed. Tony has a Bachelor's of Science in psychology from West Point, a master in organizational psychology from the University of Columbia, and a master's in higher education and administration from the University of Kentucky Louisville. Tony will retire in July of 2022 and will work as a consultant. Tony, thank you for coming to the show today. Uh, thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. And so, like we ask everybody when we start off, um, the entrance to West Point and, and selection to go to West Point. What motivated you? 
So when I look at the entrance and selection to go to West Point, um, lar largely was born by just service for my family. Um, I come from a family of service. Uh, my dad was in the military. A lot of his siblings were in the military. I've had uncles that served in the military. Um, so service was all around me. Um, and so for me, um, serving was, was, it was not something I was forced to do. My dad encouraged me to do whatever I wanted to do, but it's something that I wanted to do because I was inspired and motivated by what I saw him um, serving as an NCO. Um, and when it, and when you look at why I wanted to be an officer, um, when I told him that I wanted to go into the military, he really encouraged me to be an officer. And he said, hey, if you're going to be an officer, he said, um, one route to do it is to go to West Point. And he had introduced me to a number of his officers and platoon leaders um, that he served with. And, and I was just very, very impressed with the quality officer um, that, that, they, um, that they were. Um, and so when I saw that, I said, man, this, is, this seems like a really uh, cool opportunity. And so when I looked at that, um, I applied for West Point and knowing that I, I think that I wanted to do that. Um, I didn't get into West Point directly, I ended up going to prep school, um, but I was largely motivated by wanting to serve um, as an officer and go to West Point just through the leadership that I saw that was inspired by my dad and the officers that he served with. So in that preparation, um, and then when you did transition to the prep school and to West Point, how prepared were you uh, for the academics, the physical rigor, and the stresses of school? So when I look at the academic rigors and the stressors of school, um, I think uh, when I was in, in high school, um, I, I did well. I think a lot of us did well. Um, but I wasn't really challenged as much because it came easy to me. So unfortunately, when I was in high school, I didn't learn the, the habits of learning how to study um, as well as I should have. Um, preparation was not where it should have been. Um, and so when I, when I went to West Point, I was blessed to, to go to prep school and then go to West Point. Um, but I learned uh, quickly uh, when I went to the prep school that I wasn't as prepared as I should have been. Um, and not that my, my parents didn't try to prepare me, they did. Um, I think sometimes being a high school student, sometimes you don't want to listen to your parents and you think you know everything. Um, so for me, I, I didn't um, prepare as hard in high school to take those challenging courses, as many challenging courses as I should have, that would have, you know, that would have prepared me for West Point. Um, I went to the prep school, um, did, did fairly well there, uh, had, was always pretty, pretty good at math. Um, the verbal was something that I continued to work on. Um, so I definitely got better there. And then um, going to prep school kind of set the conditions for learning how to time manage, understanding the rigors and the stress of what West Point will look like. Um, so while sometimes people go to the prep school and they kind of regret it, I think that was the best thing that could happen to me. Um, because it prevented me from um, potentially washing out because I wasn't prepared for it. Because um, I know sometimes there's people who go there and they get to West Point and they, they just don't know what to expect. Um, but for many of us that went to prep school, we didn't have that problem because we knew what to expect because they kind of trained us and, and taught us and guided us appropriately. Um, so the, the time management, the expectation management was there from the prep school standpoint. Um, but obviously, um, when we went to the prep school, the focus was largely on, on English and math. And so being able to incorporate all the other different um, subjects, that was something that um, some of us probably weren't as prepared for. We knew it was coming, but we just didn't get that exposure at the prep school. Um, so you've got, you've got a, a number of different subject areas you've got to be prepared for as opposed to just two. Um, so time for expectation management at the prep school was definitely what, what I needed um, in terms of being able to have that focus in, in all the different areas was something that um, I had, but I didn't have as much. And so when I got to West Point, um, it was it was a little challenging, um, but definitely worked hard to overcome. And you're a pretty extroverted guy and, and you started out um, and, and while at West Point did a lot of things. You did football, you did track, you did handball. 
uh, and the National Society for Black Engineers. How did you balance that workload um, and balance your priorities and, and, and lean on your peers? Um, so when, when you talk about balancing, um, I would probably tell you that I didn't balance it as well as I should have. Um, going to West Point, my plan was not to play football. Um, I played at the prep school and um, my, my goal was to go to West Point and just only focus on, um, on studies. Um, but knowing that we had to do a sport anyways, so you could either be on, the, as you know, be on a club team or be on an intramural or be on a core squad. I was like, well, I'm pretty good at football, so I might as well try out for the football team and end up walking on. Um, so that um, took a, a lot of time. And given the fact that, like I said, um, was challenged academically a little bit. So adding that extra layer of football and a time commitment, both during Beast Barracks and during academic year, um, something that I wasn't necessarily prepared for. Because um, I balanced it in, in high school, but as you know, um, when you're going from classes to athletics to practice or extended period of athletics, then going straight into um, study hall, that's just a lot, um, a lot to manage. Um, and so even though we had it at the prep school, but like I said, you have a lot more classes to prepare for when you're at West Point. So I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily balanced as, as well as I could have to the point that my freshman year, I didn't do well um, academically. I didn't do as well. I didn't have to go to summer school or anything like that. But um, my, my GPA was not where it needed to be. So it was for me, I knew I needed to kind of make some changes and I ended up leaving the football team. Not that I didn't, um, I enjoyed my time with the football team. I love my, my teammates. But for me, just for being a cadet, I knew that was the best choice. So unfortunately, I did leave the football team and then um, ventured off into to other areas, but largely I wanted to focus on academics. Now, when did you find um, your passion or your niche for the Army? Uh, when you started looking for a branch, what drove your decision? So when we were looking at branches, um, I think until, in fact, I know until our first year, I was set on being an artillery officer to the point that I had when I was a team leader, I had my plebes greet me with go big guns, corporal. Um, so I was kind of set on on that wanting to be an artillery officer. And then um, over the, the course of junior cow year going into first year, I realized like maybe I, I want to do um, infantry um, when I did more research. And obviously we're exposed to all the various branches. And and for me, um, I think it kind of it was a slow reveal to me because I, I didn't see a lot of minorities that were combat arms, um, specifically infantry when we were there. And so, as you know, I mean, obviously we're exposed to all the different officers and different branches. So a lot of times we kind of gravitate to those officers that, that we're familiar with, we see with and mentor us and all kind of stuff. So I didn't we didn't necessarily have that for the infantry branch there in, um, at, at West Point. So infantry was never one of those front running type um, branches for me. But when I did more research, I realized, um, I, like you said, I was, I'm an introvert, an extrovert. So I love dealing with people. Uh, when I looked at all the branches and I looked at the branch that was going to give me the greatest opportunity of leading the most number of soldiers. Uh, when I looked at, I like to challenge myself. That's one of the things I learned at West Point to be very competitive. Um, I'd always played sports, but I think my competitive nature kind of took a step up even more at West Point because obviously we're always being evaluated, whether it be the, the military, the physical, the academic um, so that definitely kind of stepped up a little bit. And, and so being competitive, wanting to be a, a part of the best branch, uh, per se, and, and being able to lead people right out the gate um, and lead the most number of people possible, um, infantry branch seemed like the, the best thing for me. It gave me an opportunity to go out there in the field and not necessarily spend time doing other stuff. Um, so for me, it just seemed like a, a, an easy decision. And fortunate enough, I was able to get it. So you graduate from West Point. Um... You go to OBC, uh, 9-11 happens. 
You go to ranger school afterwards. I get injured in ranger school. Deploy or correction PCS to Port Campbell. And your unit was in Afghanistan and then comes back. Um, that's a tough road to be in where your, your soldiers come back and you greet them as an infantry officer without a tab. And they're all combat vets. Talk me through uh, those early stages and those early uh, months as a PL at Fort Campbell. Yeah, that was definitely a challenge for me um, because, like you said, I mean, my my platoon and my battalion was one of the few battalions that actually deployed to um, Afghanistan in response to, to 9-11. Um, so when you, I, I, myself and uh, two of our uh, fellow lieutenants, we tried our hardest to get to Afghanistan, but um, they just weren't going to push us forward because they didn't know when they were going to come back. They felt that at any given point in time, they'd get the order to redeploy. Um, so we got stuck on rear D and and did the best that we could there to, to handle reports of survey. Um, so yeah, there was definitely some trepidation there when you're knowing that you've got a, a platoon that's coming back, combat tested, all CIBs, and here you are, a lieutenant uh, with no CIB, no EIB. Uh, only thing I had was my airborne wings and didn't even have my ranger tap. So I was like, man, I said, so you, you're talking about um, being nervous showing up on day one. Um, but at the end of the day, what I learned was um, they just respected me because I knew my craft. Um, and then there was times I had to kind of correct. There were some times that obviously, as you know, when you deploy, you learn how to shortcut some things and try to do the easy way because sometimes it's more, more efficient. Um, but we kind of had to level the bubbles with respect to going back to doing the things that were in the FM um, and in the TM. And so they respected me for that because uh, while I, I, I leveraged their, their combat experience and listened to the, their lessons learned, um, understood um, that hey, there's no guarantee that we will find ourselves back in Afghanistan. So some of those TTPs that worked in Afghanistan may not work in our next deployment if there is one. Um, so being able to listen to what they had, being able to take their experiences and, and leverage them when we needed to, but also at the same time not lose focus on what was important and what the, what doctrine said uh, was, was my, my saving grace. And so it worked out very, very well. Um, we had a great relationship and then uh, the platoon did extraordinarily well to the point that we didn't find out. Uh, we later found out that six months or seven months later after they got back from Afghanistan, we would end up deploying again to Iraq. And so I got that opportunity, to, like you said, um, leading, leading a platoon, both a rifle platoon and a support platoon in combat. That was pretty awesome. Um, but just being able to be proficient in my warrior task and drills and being proficient in the doctrine um, is what, what was most important and, and worked out very well. Now. That experience in Iraq uh, for your first deployment, did it test you in a way that you didn't expect uh, and you didn't feel prepared for? Or did it feel like you were you were ready for the challenge, even if you didn't know 100% what you were getting into? So, I mean, that deployment was, was interesting, like I said. I mean, it was one of those things that um, we had our brigade. We kind of got a heads up from our brigade commander, our brigade commander at the time. Tired as a three-star, said, hey, if I was a betting man, um, we would be in Iraq in four months. And he said this in November of 2002. In March of, in February 2003, we were deploying to Kuwait um, for the, the invasion. Um, so when you're looking at that, obviously, I mean, we spent all our time at Bolick, um, there at Fort Benning, preparing for um, combat operations, preparing for uh, the war conditions and things like that. But you we were not prepared for to do that in a combat or excuse me in a desert environment it's all um in the back 40 in the woods and things like that so it's a little bit different and so we are all kind of familiar with doing that and we're so used to finding the high ground and and bounding and things like that but it was completely different when you get to kuwait because there are, there is no high ground 
Um, and so being able to adapt those TTPs and, and understand fighting the terrain that you're on instead of trying to uh, do something different was definitely a unique challenge. Um, being able to um, manage um, the, the expectations of the soldiers um, because, I mean, they come back from Afghanistan. And so they're excited about it. But also at the same time, you had a lot of new soldiers that were in the platoon. They were nervous because um, they didn't have that experience. And regardless of how many times you, you deploy, there's always that possibility that you're nervous because you don't know what's going to happen. The unexpected. There's always the possibility that someone may not come back alive. And so we trained as hard as we could when um, you're going there. And then here we are sitting in Kuwait and we get the call. Hey, it's time to move forward. And we move with 3ID. And, and so, I mean, the night before, we had no idea where our trucks were going to come from. They showed up in the middle of the night and we get on our trucks, load them, and, and we start moving. And so um, we were definitely going into an environment where we're not prepared for um, but you just had to trust your training and trust um, your man to your left and right and know that everything was going to be all right. And so being able to be a platoon leader that kind of remained calm, that was key because um, you had soldiers that were very, very nervous. Um, and so, like I said, mainly the ones that did not deploy to Afghanistan a few months prior. Um, so, yeah, that, that was that was definitely an interesting deployment. So you talked about that transition uh, from being a rifle platoon leader to a support platoon leader. How did that go for you personally? Uh, switching gears from leading um, a platoon of soldiers that you could you could relatively see and hear in contact to a support platoon that'd be spread across the battlefield in support of the battalion. That that was interesting because, um, like you said, I mean, we trained for being a rifle platoon leader, so that was something that was second nature because I've been doing that from Bolick and, and all the way until um, even through JRTC before our deployment. Um, so to move to a support platoon, and that was a decision that I, my battalion commander said, hey, you have a choice between you could do, be a scout platoon leader, be a support platoon leader. And um, I chose to be a um, support platoon leader because um, at the time they had support platoons inside infantry battalions. And I was usually one of the top lieutenants in the battalion. So I was blessed enough to be selected for that. Um, and, it, and it worked out well. I mean, but it was it was unique because those are things that you're not trained on. So you have to get into that. You have to get into the, the, the doctrine and learn all about um, delivering logistics, the, the capabilities of logistics, the importance of the on-time logistics and things like that. Learning how to do log packs and things like that and learning how to do speed balls and all those types of things. So learning a different doctrine was unique and it's not one of those things and you have to do it in, in combat. So you don't have one of those times where you're doing it in garrison. You kind of I'm on the weekends. You can get into the FMs and things like that and learn how to do your, do your job. And then you know when that next training environment is going to come so you can then practice what you learn. You go from being a rifle platoon leader to automatically switching over and being a support platoon leader within a few days. Obviously, you're listening to your soldiers. You listen to your NCOs on what, what they've done because they've been doing it for the first six months. But also at the same time, you got to know it for yourself because there's sometimes there's things that they may do that may not be right and you have to call them on it. Um, so being able to um, do that was critically important, but also at the same time being able to do something as simple as man the, the, the 50 cal or man the Mark 19, because um, with us having our companies spread all over Iraq, um, we, we couldn't afford to have three piece people in a, in a gun truck. And so you had, I had half of my platoon going to one location to these two companies, I had another half of my platoon going to another location to these two companies. So there were many times where I was either the driver or I was either the gunner because we just had to do that. Um, because we were just that spread then. And so being able, uh, capable um, to do that and cover down on those positions uh, was critically important. Um, and so it's not one of those, oh, I'm, I'm the platoon leader, I don't do that, and you do that. Um, we're all, uh, we all have to be knowledgeable and being able to execute those tasks. And, and, and so 
it was it was an interesting and unique experience and one I wouldn't trade for the world. So you deploy back from Iraq um, and head to the career course and then uh, and, and, and Ranger School. Talk me through as as an officer who's had that amount of experience um, going through Ranger School, what it was like the second time. Yeah, so like I said, uh, like I said, I, I left Ranger School in, in 2002. I got hurt. Um, so my whole time as a lieutenant at Fort Campbell, um, I did not have my Ranger tab. And so, as you know, when we were in the Army then, it was the BDU. So your branch was on your left side. So they can automatically see um, what, what branch you are. And so, and then when you're infantry, they see that you're infantry. The next thing they did was a left sh- uh, shoulder check to see if you had your Ranger tab. And so that was just commonplace. This is one of those things. So they just want to see are your Ranger qualified or your Ranger qualified. And so I, I got left shoulder checked a lot. Um, and so that just added to the nervousness or just the, the, the stress of being a, a platoon leader and then thriving in those areas because you knew you had to work that much harder given the fact that you weren't Ranger qualified. Um, so deployed to Iraq, like you said, without the Ranger tab, um, get selected to go to uh, Pathfinder school. And um, but my battalion commander had forgotten that I wasn't Ranger qualified. So he said, All right, go back to and he, he has this conversation. He sees me in the battalion headquarters. He said, hey, Lieutenant Rice, he said, Tony, you've done a phenomenal job. You're one of the top two lieutenants in battalion. He said, but you got to go back and get your Ranger tab. And he said, it's not about leadership in this case. He's like, it's about going back and getting your Ranger tab because he knew the criticality and, and having that um, as an infantry leader. And said, so I completely acknowledge her. Uh, went back um, within 45 days of redeploying from OF-1. Uh, went to Ranger School and, and then successfully completed. Um, where I think most people get uh, frustrated and a lot of times, like you said, the stre- the success of people who go as a senior lieutenant or as a captain is not very high because we um, they, they've proven themselves a lute- as a lieutenant. And they, yeah, so um, get back from Iraq. Um, I had to go back to Ranger School and my battalion commander meets me in the battalion headquarters and he said, hey, Tony, he said, uh, you're already one of the top two lieutenants in the battalion, um, but you got to go back to Ranger School. And I said, acknowledge, sir, because um, at this point in time, it, was, it wasn't about leadership. Um, Ranger School has always been billed as a leadership school, um, but this was not about leadership. This was about getting the tab in order to have the credibility that's needed within the infantry branch. So I went back to Ranger School, um, graduated um, 90 days later, and then ended up PCS into um, the career course within uh, three weeks after, after graduating. Graduated in August. Um, went back to Fort Campbell, um, moved out of my apartment, cleared Fort Campbell, and reported back to Fort Benning for the career course um, in September as a, as, a, as a first lieutenant. Uh, so when you look at um, the success, as you kind of um, alluded to, the success of senior lieutenants or captains at Ranger School is not very high. And I think largely because Ranger School builds itself as a leadership school. And so when you, when you do that, which is, and it is, um, uh, when you do that, uh, you have a lot of people who've been successful as a lieutenant and they, they believe that, hey, I've already demonstrated that I'm a good leader. I don't need the Rangers tab in order to justify that. So they don't end up going back to Ranger School. Or they're not as, as hungry about it um, if a lot of times that they don't graduate. Sometimes injuries do play into it. Um, but sometimes they, they just have that, that mindset. Their, their heart's not in it. And Ranger School is one of those schools. If your heart's not in it, you're not going to graduate. you got to want it and want it bad. And so for me, um, I, I saw it as something I needed um, as an infantry leader, um, but most importantly, um, for me, Ranger School has been a life um, school um, because there's so many things that I took from Ranger School that I now carry forward. Now, there's not a lot of things that I'm afraid to do um, because of the confidence that I got from Ranger School. 
Um, there's not uh, when I look at something like this, something as simple as like um, taking a, a HHC company command for a division um, as my first command. Not being a, a by being an infantry guy and being asked to do that command, um, I had confidence to do that um, because of what the confidence I gained from Ranger School. And so I tell people all the time when I talk to lieutenants that have gone to Ranger School and didn't graduate. Um, and they'll sit there and say, well, sir, I'm planning on being a branch detail. And I was like, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're going to be a branch detail or not. Um, the lessons that you gain from Ranger School will be life serving. Um, so it's not just about having that tab to be uh, to prove yourself as a leader in the Army. But that Ranger tab carries over lessons learned um, that you can use for the rest of your life. I've got friends of mine that went to business school and they got selected for business school because they see things. One of the reasons that helped them get selected was they had ranger school on it, uh, on their resume. Um, because at the end of the day, business uh, schools, they select people that they, they believe that can be uh, successful in stressful environments. Um, and what more of a stressful environment that you could potentially show that you could be successful in um, or um, either being in combat or ranger school. And so I tell people all the time, regardless of whether you're going to stay infantry or not, um, Ranger School is not something that's just for infantry leaders or just if you're going to be infantry your entire career. Go because there are lessons that you can learn for life there. Um, and then at the end of the day, if you have a goal and achieve that, that's just something that you can know you feel better about because you worked hard towards a, uh, a difficult goal and you're able to accomplish it. Awesome. And so when you've completed Ranger School, uh, you completed the career course, uh, you go to Korea and you serve at the UN Security Force in South Korea uh, for a year. Initially looking for company command, uh, not getting it, but still having a, a great opportunity to serve in South Korea uh, at the Security Force. You redeploy to Fort Stewart. Talk me through um, arrival to Fort Stewart and the search for company command. Yeah, so that was that was interesting. Like you said, I, um, I I did go to the JSA. That was a choice that I made. I was um, I was a by name request to go back to Campbell after the career course, back to the same battalion. Um, but, um, but I told my battalion commander that, sir, I, thank you, um, but no, I'd rather go to Korea mainly because um, part of being in the army is being able to experience cultures and travel. Um, so I wanted to do that. I had never been to Korea, and I'd heard great things about the opportunity. So. Um, I was one of three people, there were three slots, and the other two guys had found a way to get out of it, but I didn't want to do that. So I went to Korea, went to the JSA, it was a phenomenal experience, I really did. Um, fast forward, coming out of Korea, um, I actually went to Korea with the anticipation of going to 3ID, I mean to 2ID, um, to check that mechanized block because that's what the infantry wanted me to do. Um, but when I got to Korea, I was snagged to the joint, the joint security area, so coming out of Korea, um, I had a number of choices, and most of my choices that infantry branch gave me were were all mostly um, light or air assault, which I knew that wasn't going to happen because I'd already been in two air assault slash light units. So the one mechanized unit that was on the list was Fort Stewart. So I kind of saw the writing on the wall, um, but I still put it number two instead of putting number one, and I ended up going to Fort Stewart. And it worked out well anyways um, because Fort Stewart is an, is an hour away from my family. And so getting there, um, I was assigned to 1st Brigade, Raider Brigade. Um, but shortly after I signed in, I had the G1 um, um, for the division. He, he chased me down. He found me in a parking lot and he said, are you Captain Rice? I said, I am. Um, he said, have you had come to command? I said, I have not. And he said, hey, um, I'd like for you to go interview for this command. I said, wow. I said, um, um, the fact that he didn't know me um, was offering me a command. Um, let me know that. So, okay, there was probably some unique challenges with this organization. And then I found out that it was a HHC division command. So I was like, wow. 
Um, so obviously not something that most infantry officers do for a first command. Um, we typically go serve it on the, the brigade staff or and then uh, waiting to queue for a rifle company command. Um, but for me, it's like, man, I said, I wanted to be a commander. Um, so I accepted a challenge and, and with the understanding that after I did that, I would end up um, being a rifle company commander after that. And so I, I, um, I wrote, uh, interviewed for it, got selected for it, and then assumed command of that um, HHC division. Not knowing that a few months later, that company was actually, or the division was actually going to be um, activated for deployment um, in support of the surge. So I went from being a support company commander to now being in charge of all logistics in the division staff um, as we deployed 3ID headquarters to um, support the surge operations in Iraq. Um, so a very unique experience, a lot of things I was not um, prepared for, but like I said, I had a feeling that I'd be successful because I was confident um, just based off of just experiences in the past, but some of the confidence I um, garnered from Ranger School. And so... Second deployment to Iraq, um, different organization. Describe that experience going back a second time uh, and seeing it from a different perspective. So from that perspective, it was it was definitely unique um, because one, this time I wasn't um, at the tip of the spear per se. I wasn't out there doing those combat operations, but um, I, I kind of was a little bit because uh, what we found out um, when we got to Iraq um, there was a, a battalion from 10th Mountain that was responsible for providing SEC 4 on, on Camp Liberty. And one of the um, brigade commanders told the CG, said, hey, sir, uh, one thing that would really help us get after the enemy is if I can get my squadron from um, pulling security and doing patrols there around, in and around Camp Liberty and out the, outside the surrounding area. So our CG said, absolutely, we can make that happen. He tells the brigade commander, hey, you can have your battalion back. And but there was no battalion or companies that could then be responsible for that. So um, I get told my battalion commander calls me in. He's like, hey, um, you need to create a makeshift organization that's responsible for for patrolling. So I said, OK, sir, we'll make it happen. So I take people from my support platoon. I take people from my maintenance um, platoon, which is a pretty large uh, maintenance platoon. And and we did some training and we got to um, we got after it and uh, made sure they were squared away. I make sure they're certified on, on patrolling operations, and and we ended up doing that. Um, so in 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 addition to them doing what they had to do, providing logistics for Camp Liberty for the division headquarters, in addition to pulling maintenance on the vehicles, they were also re responsible for um, uh, patrolling in and around Camp Liberty and outside that area as well uh, at the, the the airport there. Um, so it was one of those things that both my myself and my first arm we are, we are more than capable of doing because I was infantry. My my first arm was infantry. Um, so we knew how to train them and we knew how to get them prepared. Um, so it was a unique experience, another one from which I was not prepared for. Um, but at the, at the same time, the past experiences I had um, had definitely prepared um, the organization to do it and do it successfully. Um, so Now, while in Iraq, you transition and you go uh, to an MTO infantry company. How was that? How was that coming from? up at the division level down to a, a company and, and building credibility uh, and conducting operations uh, when you didn't even have a reputation in the brigade? Yeah, it was it was interesting. Um, ironically, I was I ended up going back to the brigade that I was going to be a part of when I, that I had orders to uh, when I was assigned to Fort Stewart. I was going back to 1st Brigade. So after I uh, finished my HHC division command, I actually got selected to be an aide for a number of months, um, the CG's aide. So I did that and 
And after those few months, they said, hey, we got to get this guy into a rifle company command. And so the CG, um, after serving him for a few months, um, he said, hey, um, I, my aide's going to come <laughs> be your company commander in your, your battalion. Um, and so, like I said, it was, it was unique because I did not have a working relationship with that, with 27 infantry at all. Um, and so it was, it was definitely unique because there was a guy there who was slated for command and I ended up, um, I was senior to him. So I ended up taking that command. Um, so it was, it was interesting in a sense that I think they, they were kind of preparing for somebody else and then they get some guy that they don't even know. Um, but at the end of the day, um, us being professionals, they know that, Hey, this guy's the commander and he's going to, um, he's going to command. And so I'm working that relationship. Uh, so for me, um, I, I get to the battalion. I was only at the battalion for about um, two weeks, so I didn't have a lot of time to do change command inventories. Um, and then our battalion was not even co-located with the battalion headquarters, so they are a ways away. And so I, I took that time when I was doing those change command inventories, obviously, to get to know um, the soldiers and to get to know the NCOs. And so being able to establish that rapport, getting them to understand that, hey, yes, I'm, I'm the commander, but we're all on the same team. And so those two weeks were critically important because obviously I had to do the inspections, but also at the same time, um, I, I, I recognized that it was critical for me to be able to, to establish those relationships um, um, before I assumed command. And so fast forward two weeks later, I um, ended up taking command and, and we ended up finishing the rest of the deployment extraordinarily well. Wow. Um, seems to be a trend of, of, of you um, sliding in in, in in rapid succession learning on the job, building credibility, earning trust, uh, and, and creating teams of, of leaders and soldiers that can be successful. It's, it's cool to hear that you're, you're able to do that multiple times throughout at least this part of the, uh, of the discussion. Um, so you redeploy, um, complete your command at Fort Stewart. Uh, where next? So um, after, after um, command there Fort Stewart, I, I had a few options. Um, um, HRC, they were looking to send me to um, the OGAR. Um, and I, I considered that. That was always one of the assignments I wanted to do, but that would have been a third command for me. Um, and this was after, I, um, after coming out of command, um, I was asked very, very strongly to interview and go be the CG's aide again for a different CG for 3ID. Um, but I turned that down. Um, I said I, I just couldn't, I didn't want to do that. Um, because of the fact that um, we were, uh, my wife and I, we were pregnant with our first son. And I said, and I knew Thread, he was getting ready to deploy again. I said, as much as I would like to deploy downrange again, I just couldn't see myself missing the birth of my first son um, to go be the, uh, go do a job that I'd already done just for a different general officer. So um, so doing the A job wasn't something that I was going to do. The old guard was very unique. I loved the mission, um, but I didn't want to do a third command. Um, I was uh, had a letter of recommendation to go to do the JCS internship program. Um, but I really, really wanted to go to be a TAC officer. I wanted to go back to come back to our alma mater and shape and help mold the the the, the styles and the minds of the future leaders of America. Um, so I was I was accepted into the TAC program, um, and that's, that's definitely not a decision I regret. And um, and ironically, um, my, one of my future bosses, my former bosses, had asked me a few years later, it's like, hey, uh, when I ask you to go be an aide. Um, again, and you wanted to go to West Point, do you regret that decision? I said, absolutely not, sir. Um, one, because I, I couldn't go back and uh, be there for the birth of my son if I, if I missed it. Um, and then the impact that I was able to make as a TAC officer at West Point, I think it was just so pronounced. I was very, very fortunate to, to be able to be selected. Um, and then um, it worked out very, very well with respect to what I wanted to do and what I was capable of doing with the cadets there. So, Let's let's dive a little deeper on that. 
what was the biggest impact, the biggest feedback that you, you appreciated as being a tech? So, um, being able to, because as, as, as you know, as a company commander, um, you can do one of, you can lead one of two ways. You can lead in the sense that I'm the company commander. You're going to do what I tell you to do, um, which, which I mean, it's doable, but not necessarily effective. Or you can um, obviously um, allow, uh, trust your subordinates um, and then allow them to do what they are capable of doing. Um, and trust their leadership, trust their training, and, and then watch them flourish under your command. Um, and so when I go to West Point, that was one of those things um, because they're, while they're cadets um, and they don't have a lot of leadership experience and here, I mean, I've already been deployed twice and I could have easily said, you will do this because I'm the tech, um, but that's not effective. Um, you have to allow because everyone has said West Point is a leadership laboratory. And so that is their opportunity to learn how to be good leaders and and we were able to do that when we were cadets, and, and, I, and I wasn't going to um, do any differently just because we had been to combat and, and our attacks when we were cadets, a lot of them had not been. Um, and so being able to allow the cadets to make mistakes on their own, that was a challenge sometimes because you could see a train wreck getting ready to happen, um, but you allow them to make the mistakes, and then as long as it wasn't going to hurt somebody or kill somebody, you sit there. So I'll allow them to do that, and then um, let's let's and kind of AER this, and let's learn what we could have done better, and why did you do this? And so you find yourself coaching, um, you're leading, but you're you're mostly coaching because at the end of the day, you got to learn allow them to make their mistakes and kind of um, kind of find out their leadership style and work learn what works best. So I was able to do that. Um, it was easy to do that as a tack because, like I said, that's one. That's that's what I was trained to do. I was there to kind of coach and guide them. Um, but another unique experience that I got to do, I was a women's team handball coach. And so prior to that, I'd never been a coach before. Um, I played team handball as a as a cadet. I said, but going back, I had no um, had no plans of being a coach. I, um, some, uh, one of our classmates had asked me to be an assistant coach, but. Um, I was prepared to do that, but I, I didn't think I was going to end up being a coach. Um, so coaching the women's team handball team was, was unique. I mean, you're, you're an infantry officer who is used to being around male soldiers your entire career. And then now here you are um, being a, a coach for a women's team. And so um, very, very similar to when I was a support company commander, um, being in an environment where I'm not used to, um, but I'm also comfortable with because at the end of the day, I'm listening and I treat people as people. I respect people for who they are, and it's not about me. It's about not about my leadership. It's about guiding the team, the organization to where we need to go and listening and respecting people's opinions. And so it didn't matter that I'd never um, served. I, I, was, I was able to serve with a number of women in my support command, um, but so I was, I was prepared to do that. And so, and, and it worked out well. I, I enjoyed every single day of coaching the women's team. I was able to do that for um, the two years I was a tack up there, and we ended up winning a national championship. Um, but um, my success, one, was being a tack. I, I love that, being able to see the cadets flourish um, both individually, and we, our, our, our company had won a number of brigade championships when I was there as a tack. Um, but then also at the same time to be able to be a women's team handball coach and I watched the women win a national championship for the first time in five years. And so being able to do that was just phenomenal. And then it kind of solidified and kind of validated my decision to come back to West Point. Wow. That's, that's really cool. Uh, and so you complete your time as a PMS and was, was the desire to immediately jump back down to the line 
um, or to, to look for another opportunity to expand your horizons? So, yeah, I mean, when I left from being attack, um, I, I was selected for um, resident ILE. Um, ironically, when we were when I was coming out of West Point at the time, that was when um, the army went from um, everyone was going to ILE and then they realized there was a backlog um, because people were deploying and they, there was not enough seats for um, all the officers that were being delayed from going to ILE. So they realized there was a bottleneck and it was like there's absolutely no way that we can get everyone to ILE. So we're going to have to say, hey, you're not going to be able to do ILE. You can do the short course and you have to do the rest of it, um, box of books and things like that. And so our your group of one was was caught up in that. Um, and so um, I was fortunate enough to be uh, one of the ones that was not told that, hey, um, you got to, um, um, we, hey, we, we, we can send you to ILE. So I was selected for resident ILE, but, um, but I also want to do something different. So, and that's um, been a trademark in my career, doing what I want to do, what kind of suits my desires and the things that, um, that I would not regret if I did a little bit later on. And so while um, I listened to my mentors and they said, hey, Tony, after leaving West Point, you need to go back to, you need to go to Leavenworth, kind of get regreened. Um, and a lot of people have said the main reason you want to go to Leavenworth is the networking opportunities. And so for me, um, my network was pretty strong. I knew a lot of my, my, uh, my cohort members and, and people in my year group. So for me, it's like, nah, that's cool, but I, I definitely want to go to try a different experience. And so for me, um, I had been eyeing the CGSC Interagency Fellowship um, since my first year as a TAC. So I knew the timeline. And when the timeline came available, I told Branch, I said, hey, um, I'm glad that you selected me for resident ILE, but I really want to go to this interagency fellowship. Um, and they said, okay, absolutely. Um, and so selected for it. And when I got selected for it, I had to put my preferences in uh, what agency I would work for. And my top two were USAID and FEMA, um, primarily because um, obviously FEMA makes a huge difference um, on the domestic side and USAID makes a huge difference on an international level. So uh, being able to be um, see how we work with our foreign aid um, with other countries was 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 one something I was very interested in, and I was fortunate enough to be selected by USA to do a fellowship with them. And so you complete um, that internship with USAID, uh, and then you deploy back to Fort Campbell uh, to be a battalion uh, S three and XO. Talk me through that transition back down to the line and returning to uh, Fort Campbell. Yes, very unique transition. Um, so my fellowship, I actually finished the fellowship a month early due to the timeline that the Rockassans had. So um, by me leaving a month early, that allowed me to get to Campbell just in time um, to, I was literally on Fort Campbell a week um, before I departed for JRTC. So in that week, I had to in process Fort Campbell, had to go to the range, get qualified, um, had to receive my household goods and unpack the household goods as best I could, knowing the fact that my wife and boys were going to be in a, a house of boxes. Um, for the next month. So I, I didn't want to do that to him. So I, uh, after I got off of work, usually 17, 1800, usually 1800 later, I was spent um, the next three or four hours every night unpacking stuff, trying to get the boxes out of the house so they didn't have to live amongst boxes for those those four or five weeks that I was down there. Um, like I said, it was on, on ground for a week. We had our battalion ball um, that Saturday night and that Sunday night we were getting on buses heading to JRTC. Um, go to JRTC, we did our rotation there for four weeks and then I, I'm told um, halfway through that, hey, we need a number of field grades to stay behind to serve as OCs for the follow-on battalion, and you've been selected. And so it went from me only being there for four weeks to now I'm going to be there for an additional four weeks, a total of eight weeks. Um, and then after those two weeks, I found out that, hey, uh, we don't need you. You can head back. So I was there for about 10 extra days before I got uh, able to go back to Fort Campbell. 
Um, at this time, um, the reason we get ready to go, uh, we went to JRTC because our, our battalion was on the patch start to deploy to Afghanistan. This was in September of 14. Um, so we got back from JRTC, um, got every, everyone, everything situated, and then the battalion actually um, signed out on block leave um, with the plan of coming back from block leave to deploy to Afghanistan. During block leave, we got the call that, A, your battalion is not going to go to Afghanistan because at that point in time, they were re re reducing the number of boots on ground in Afghanistan. And so the battalion that we are going to replace was going to be replaced by a unit already in Afghanistan. Instead of sending them home, having only been on ground for about three or four months, they were going to move them to another battle space. And then um, they were going to finish out their nine months and we were potentially going to end up um, deploying at a later time. So we, we moved from September 14 deployment timeline and my battalion commander says, hey, um, we need to come up with a training plan that's now going to fill the space that we thought we were going to end up deploying. So. Uh, created a training plan for our battalion and, and it went from September all the way to November, um, the end of November. Um, and then in December, we end up going on our PDSS to Afghanistan. Um, come back in December, we go on um, Christmas, Christmas block leave. And in January, um, since we did our JRTC rotation in um, the June, July timeframe, it was it had been six months before we were scheduled to deploy in January 15. And they said, hey, you can't deploy because your MRA or your, your, your uh, exercise your rotation was more than 90 days ago. So we had to do a mission rehearsal exercise and uh, we didn't have time to go back to GRTC. So GRTC, and we were gonna end up doing an advise and assist mission anyway. So they, GRTC sent a number of officers up to Fort Campbell and we did a 10 day um, MRE there um, at Fort Campbell in preparation for our deployment. So we did that. And then within two weeks of finishing that, we get on planes and head to Afghanistan. So we deployed to Afghanistan from January 15 until October 15. So let me let me dig into the advise and assist mission um, just to make sure. I mean, because not everybody saw the structure. Um, you strip out a good chunk of the uh, junior soldiers out of your headquarters and out of your battalions. And you send senior NCOs and officers uh, to advise and assist um, the host nation. In this situation, it was Afghanistan. There's a lot of stress and a lot of friction associated with that. Talk me through that. There was, um, there was definitely a lot. Um, so our battalion's specific mission, we were advising um, and assisting the uh, 201st Corps, and uh, ANA 201st Corps, and then we got added to 203rd Corps. Um, so th that was um, definitely interesting in the sense that um, the senior leaders that you mentioned were primarily the brigade staff. So here our brigade commander is giving us the brigade one, the brigade four, and all his, his, uh, his, his field grades, his, um, and they were serving on our advise and assisting. And so we had um, one of our companies was, um, they were the uplift mission with the SF guys. And then we had one company that was responsible for SEC4. So we only, and we had our, um, we had some members of our workhorse, our support company, and we had a few members of our HSC deployed, but most of our battalion was sitting in, F uh, was sitting back at Fort Campbell. And so, I mean, all total, I think our battalion only deployed about um, about 200 or so folks of our 600 plus, almost 700 plus battalion. So we still had 500 people back in the rear. So we, we had that requirement of being able to stay um, doing what we need to do with the advising assist mission, advising um, the Afghans there. And at the time there, I was the S3. So I was really, really focused on the set four and making sure we maintained our proficiency on training there. We did live fires there in Afghanistan. So that's what we were doing, making sure that, that all the uh, the CONOPs were submitted for patrols and things like that. So that was that was my main focus as the three. 
And then um, halfway through, um, through that deployment, I switched from being the S3 to the XO. And then once I became the XO, then now my new job was to be the chief of staff, uh, the, the, the military assistant team or a trans uh, advisor team. And so going from that, now I'm not working on ConOps anymore. Now I am actually making sure that we are doing all the things that we need to do. We are solving those complicated and those wicked problems that the ANA Corps was having and we're being able to coach them through those things. So um, unique in the sense that, like I said, when we go over there, um, we couldn't just, just patrol. We had to maintain our proficiency. So, so we had to be able to execute those live fires. And you typically see those platoon level live fires and things like that in a combat zone, but we had to do that. But also at the same time now being able to switch gears um, halfway through that deployment and now um, be the uh, um, chief of staff of the, the military advisor team, but also at the same time still dealing with the EXO challenges of back in the rear, um, making sure maintenance is staying where they need to be because when we come back, we can't sit there and use the excuse that a our senior leaders in our battalion headquarters was deployed as to why our, our equipment is not ready to, to execute any mission that the Army would give us. So um, you had to balance your time between the things that were happening in Afghanistan as well as the things that were happening at Fort Campbell. And at this time, there was also the green on blue threat. Mm -hmm. And so how did you manage the stress? How did you manage your time? How did you um, keep that focus uh, during a period of time that is already stressful um, as a major, but even more so when you when you talk through the unique circumstance you were in? Yeah, and ironic that you mentioned that because we actually had that. Um, we had a couple of those incidents when we had that, and we actually lost a soldier um, as a result of that when we were in Afghanistan. Um, and so it wasn't in our battalion, it was in our sister battalion, but it, it happened. Uh, we had one there on our, on our um, outpost, and then um, there was no um, deaths um, as a result, no casualties as a result of that one of fatalities, but there was in our sister battalion. And so, like you said, I mean, it, it's difficult because at the end of the day, when that happens, um, you, you don't, you can't sit there and say, we're going to stop doing this. Um, you can't stop trusting your peers or you can't stop trusting the, the, the Afghans, um, knowing that, Hey, there's obviously there's a, there's a seed of distrust there because you don't, you didn't see this coming. Um, and it happened nonetheless. Um, and it makes it even worse when you have soldiers that die. And so, um, being able to maintain that trust when also at the same time, um, execute the mission that you're called to do. Um, was a challenge. And I think our battalion and our brigade, we executed it um, as best we can and we did a great job doing it, um, but it was definitely not easy. Um, and so especially, um, and we had seen things like that. A lot of the, like I said, a lot of the, the leaders have been deployed before. So that wasn't the first time we'd seen that. Um, but for younger soldiers, I mean, because we had soldiers that were graduating from basic training and they got to Fort Campbell, they're doing their initial entry training and they're, they're doing, they're on ground not very long and they're coming forward. And so for soldiers that were already kind of nervous for that to happen, um, you're, you're definitely engaging with them. I mean, the NCOs are staying engaged and they're doing what NCOs do to make sure that the, the soldier can trust and kind of not remain jaded or, um, or, or kind of pissed off and knowing that they lost a the battle buddy and still have to turn around and trust the very people that they have to work with on a daily basis. Tough. I mean, it was it, it, just a difficult, difficult situation to, to, to keep focused and also keep your team um, together while also that other part where uh, trusting and building trust and skill in that host nation partner. It's just a difficult, difficult task. Um, you guys de redeploy um, and you get the opportunity to serve in Korea as a Brigade S3 in a field artillery uh, unit. Uh, a unique challenge and a unique opportunity. How did that go? It went well. Um... 
So came back from Fort Campbell and uh, when I left Fort Campbell, I had a few options of going to, I wasn't on track to, to go on the joint staff and things like that. Um, KD time went well, didn't go as well as I liked for it to have gone, um, but um, it went well enough that I got selected for a brigade level position. So, um, but when I, there was a lot of other unique opportunities like um, infantry branch said, hey, would you like to go to Australia and do this? Or would you like to go um, to this foreign country and do that? And so. Um, I, I gave the list of preferences to my wife and said, hey, here, we can go to Germany, we can go to Australia, we can go to all these cool places. Where do you want to go? Um, Hawaii was on there, and she said, I want to go to Korea. And so when I was stationed in Korea the first time, um, we had just gotten married, so she came to, to visit me. So she really, really enjoyed Korea. And so this would have been a great opportunity for the boys to, to go to Korea and experience a different country. And so I told them for Gibraltar, she's like, yes. I said, I'll take the BCD job. Um, and so going over there to Korea and like you said, serving in an artillery unit. So at that time, the BCDs, the operations officer for the BCDs were all infantry officers. We had one of our classmates serving as the BCD, um, OPSO in, in Hawaii. We had another, um, one of my fellow battle buddies from Fort Campbell. He served as the BCD commander or OPSO in Germany. So I knew, um, and then one of our classmates also served in a position at the fourth BCD there, Shaw Air Force, um, base. So that was a infantry position at the time. And so um, to be selected for it, uh, while it's a typically an artillery or air defense unit, the OPSO positions though then was, at least for that cycle, was an infantry officer position. Um, so going there, um, kind of like I had done in the past, um, not being afraid to undertake a new challenge. I was going to an artillery unit, obviously not an artillery guy, but you learn, you have to learn the language. Um, and so I learned, learned it, got it to the FMs, got it to the TMs, and and not only did I have to learn um, everything that the, the jargon, the lexicon, uh, the terminology of an artillery officer, but also I had to learn the same thing as a, uh, for, for Air Force. Um, because in that position, we were uh, the liaison for the Army to the Air Force and for the Air Force to the Army. And so we had to be able to, to understand the, the battlefield from the aviation perspective because um, the Army would ask us, hey, what is our... Um, um, what are our ceilings for, for um, artillery? And so we had to be able to speak that, but also the Air Force had to be able to know what exactly what was going on with the ground forces there in Korea. And so I had the opportunity to actually go to an uh, Air Force course, a uh, uh, six-week Air Force course, the, um, the, Air, the Air Operations Center Initial Qualification course. Um, so I, I did that for six weeks. And then um, when I was there, I actually got to um, do the, the plans track. And the plans track was responsible for learning how to airload or airplan um, a variety of different aircraft um, for the Air Force. So you had to learn how to plan the their, their refueling missions. Where would an aircraft refuel in the air? You had to learn how to arm the aircraft based off the mission that it was going to fly. Um, so those were things that I had to, because um, there was an ops track that I could have done, but I wanted to do the, the plans track because ops already knew that because I'm, I'm an infantry officer, so I know how to work on the ops floor. And so I wanted to challenge myself and go with the plans track and it worked out pretty well. So I got to learn a lot about how the Air Force, how they go about planning um, air missions. And so being able to have that and leverage those, um, that, that knowledge when I got back was, was awesome. And so it allowed me to learn exactly what the Air Force was talking about, what they needed, and being able to uh, communicate that to the Army. Um, because the Army, we are good about, I want this. And it's like, no, you can't tell the Air Force what you want. You just have to tell them the effect that they want and allow the Air Force to choose the munitions they want to use. So I was able to communicate that. And then, but also on the Ops 4, whenever we had had exercises, I knew the capability of the Air Force and I was able to work with my counterparts in order to 
execute a lot of those missions whenever we had simulations. So once again, you're choosing um, a different route and you're, and you're, you're creating success through effort and work. Um, but I'd like to tap on uh, a, a vein of, of uh, idea that you, you talked earlier about the Ranger tab and the confidence it gave you and the trust in yourself it gave you to take risks. Can you can you talk about your relationship with your family, um, both your father and and your and your your uh, your wife? Did that give you a similar amount of trust in yourself when you were making these risks that things would work out okay? It did, because um, like I said before, when I when I look at family and it's and faith and family are kind of intertwined. Um, one thing that I've always done um, is it's easy to do it when you're when you're single because it's just about you. Um, but when I, once I got married, I knew it was important to be able to not forget that the family um, has to be a part of the plan. And I believe, or in fact, I know I saw that played out firsthand with my dad because uh, my dad served 24 years. And I vividly remember whenever it was time for an assignment um, to come up for him, he would sit us around the table and he'd be like, hey, where do you want to go? It was never one of these, hey, I want to go here and we're going to go here. He would ask my mom, he would ask me our takes on where do you want to go. And so a perfect example was when I was a kid, he had an opportunity. Um, he asked me, he's like, hey, do you want to go to, uh, to Panama? And I was like, that would be awesome. And I said, yes, I would love to go to Panama. And so I got the opportunity to go to, to Panama and live there for a year and a half. And so I got to go to Panamanian High School and then I was there and then ended up coming back to the States and to, for my senior year. And so I remember that and I, I didn't forget that. Um, because, as you know, um, we, we, the Army says it, but sometimes we say it, but we don't necessarily put our money where our mouth is, that um, the family serve as well. And so my biggest thing was I didn't want to do um, go to an assignment that was just for me if my family wasn't going to be happy. Um, because if they couldn't be happy, then I can't focus on my, on my job. So I was always mindful of where do you want to go, um, and, and, but also at the same time I had to ensure that Going there was something that uh, infantry branch advised me of, but at the end of the day, um, the final decision was, at least the rank ordering was, this is what is best for the family, this is what the family wants to do. And so I did that, like I said, um, both from um, leaving um, Fort Stewart, going to West Point, um, and I did the same thing as well as when I was um, leaving um, Fort Campbell, going to Korea um, for that second that second stint. And so family has always been very, very important to me. I've always... Um, asked them, I even asked my boys, like, where do you want to go? And, and so they were excited about going to Korea. And one of the reasons I went to Korea, because Korea, the Koreans have always been big on family there. And so I knew that would be a great opportunity for the boys to learn, to be able to experience a different culture. Um, but most importantly, for us to be able to reset. And so a lot of times um, you, you constantly deploy. And well, I mean, we talk about taking a knee, but the families need to take a knee. Um, so being able to go to Korea and be able to spend time with a family because when I deployed, my boys weren't very old. Um, they, were, they weren't very old at all. So when I come back those 10 months later, they was like, who, who is this guy? Um, and so I knew it was important for me to go somewhere where I could reconnect and spend time with the family. And so that was one of the reasons I decided to go to Korea. Um, and then, like I said, it gave me an opportunity to, to learn, um, seek a new experience and, and learn a, a new skill and, and, and encounter a different part of the Army. Now, when you finished your two years in Korea, I mean, you had done very well. Um, and so you had a strong chance um, to to choose your next shot. Um, 
Where did you go next and, 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 and why? So when I came out of Korea, like I said, um, did very well. Um, I was rated like the BCD is a small, small organization. And so um, being able to be rated where I was um, by the CG there, um, I had a very good rating. And, um, and like I said, uh, the BCD was small. And so I was, I was compared against my peers who were on the USFK staff and all these other staffs and did extraordinarily well. So for me, um, I wanted to go to be a professor of military science. Um, after leaving or after leaving West Point, I knew my passion was serving um, with young um, adults, serving in the higher ed space um, because they're in that malleable stage of their life because they're willing to seek guidance, they're willing to listen, they're willing to learn. And so I knew if I had the opportunity again um, to if I had the opportunity to apply to be a professor of military science and I definitely um, take full advantage of it. So coming out of Korea, um, or when I was in Korea, I knew I wanted to apply and then I was able to apply and, and got selected. Um, and so for me, I mean, when you look at my resume, you'll see that I was at West Point for a number of years. You see that I was a professor of military science, but those were intentional decisions um, because I knew my passion. I knew some, something I've been called to do and I knew that's where I was effective and, and, and able to do that. And I think a lot of times in the army, sometimes we go to where we think people want us to go or we go to where our mentors say we have to go and we, we neglect our personal choices. We, we neglect our purpose um, in being able to make the most influence in people's lives. And so, yes, if you go somewhere where somebody else wants you to go, that's great. But are you going to be extraordinarily effective in doing that? And so for me, I knew that going back to be a professor of military science was a space that I knew I could be effective. I knew it's a passion that I had and I knew that's a calling that I had. So when I was selected to be that, it worked out very well. And so you get selected, you go to Virginia, um, and you become a PMS. Talk, talk me through that transition because it's different. Um, ROTC is not West Point. Right. And so there's unique challenges and unique opportunities. Uh, how did it go? It, it, like I said, it was different um, because, like I said, at West Point, we don't have a lot of distractions. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, to distract us, but it's mostly um, centered around our cadet life. And so for me, I didn't have that perspective going to be a professor of military science where a lot of my cadets had two and three jobs. A number of them had families and a number of them who didn't have families had grandparents or aunts and uncles that had a lot of significant um, family events and, and things going on that distracted them from their ability to not only focus on academics, but Army, also Army ROTC. And so that was a challenge because we're just used to, hey, you go to class, after you class, you got um, intramurals or athletics, and after that, you got homework. Um, and so being able to see it from that perspective, I had to kind of open my aperture. And from, I mean, at West Point, I mean, as a tech, uh, when, if you wanted to get your cadet's attention, um, the quickest way, unfortunately, is like to disapprove passes. Um, so um, you do that, your cadets will show up in your office very, very quickly. Uh, obviously, transactional leadership is not the way to go, um, but sometimes that's the only type of leadership that some people understand. Um, and then when you get to ROTC, it's completely different because there's no transactional lever there. Um, you have to meet the cadets where they're at and you have to understand. I mean, you hold them to a standard um, and you let them know that, hey, this is what is expected of you. So, yes, um, I acknowledge that the things that you're going through, but let's kind of go through our decision making process. And while this seems like an emergency now, let's kind of backwards walk this this issue and find out where could we potentially um, averted this situation. Have we thought about it a little differently? And some of those things you can't change. 
Um, they just are what they are. But some of them were, were just due to bad decision making or or rushed or last minute decision making. And so being able to do that was was one of those things that that you kind of have to do. Um, and you have to plan around stuff because at West Point, I mean, when, when you're doing training, it's, flop, it's plopped on the calendar and there's not other things you have to plan around. Whereas when you're in ROTC, there are things you have to plan around. Like you have to plan around football games or you have to plan around homecoming weekends at, 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 at normal colleges or, or HBCU specifically um, to try to do a planning event or a training event during a homecoming weekend and you're just setting yourself up for failure. Um, or understanding that, hey, during this particular week, you're probably not going to get a lot of support. So you probably don't need to plan certain things during that week. So you and you can sit there and go against the grain or you can recognize, hey, this is what it is. And this is the culture. Or this is the expectation or this is how things are done and find ways to accomplish the same end without necessarily going against things that are already kind of set in place. And so um, that was one area that it was different. And then another area that is different, um, when you're at West Point, you have, everyone's got their own responsibility. At West Point, you have the admissions team is responsible for admission. They're re- responsible for recruiting people into the new class. You've got DMI that's largely responsible for making sure that your cadets are trained on writing out orders and all these other things. And you've got your instructors that are teaching the classes. And for me as a tech, my main responsibility was obviously... Um, making sure their rooms um, were, were squared away, making sure they went to classes. Um, and if they did something, they were disciplined appropriately. And also um, prof- the professional military ethic, teaching those classes through the assignment center and things like that, and also served as a mentor. But in ROTC, it's different because you as the professor of military science, you are responsible for all of that. You have to go out there and recruit. Uh, some universities can do, uh, they don't have to do a lot of recruiting because big name schools, people want to go to those schools. Um, so depending on the school you're at, you have to do your own recruiting. And now with your cadre, you are responsible for teaching classes. You're responsible for grading those papers. You're responsible for planning the FTXs that your cadets do. You're responsible for coordinating the transportation for those cadets to get there. You're responsible for doing those labs. So you are responsible for everything. You're responsible for going out into those high schools and engaging with those students, trying to recruit students to your program. You're responsible for going to those college fairs that are happening in the local area in order to get students to come to your program. Um, you're responsible for engaging the, the senior leadership from the university in hopes that you can get the support that you need because um, there's a budget there. And, and so if you have a smaller budget, it's more difficult to do things. Where if you have a larger budget, budget it's a lot easier to do those things. You're responsible for engaging alumni. Whereas at West Point, you have the AOG, they kind of deal with the alumni. But as a, as a professor of military science, you have to engage with alumni, good or bad, um, in terms of getting the support, whether it be um, you may not have enough money from the university to support scholarships, but now you have to engage the alumni to hopefully garner some of that financial support to be able to use, get scholarships. So now you can now um, offer those to students who are either currently in your program or you're trying to use that as a recruiting tool to get people to come to your program. So... All those things that um, that we, you kind of take for granted at West Point when I was attacked, you have to do those things at an ROTC program, and you have to do that not with a robust staff. Um, you have to do all these things with a staff of sometimes as small as four or five people and as some, sometimes as large as maybe 12 to 15 people. And so you have, you have to teach multiple classes. You can't just teach one class one time a week. And, and then so for me, I taught the MS4s. And so I have to teach multiple classes because I have to plan around the schedules. I can't sit there and say, this is the one time that I'm going to teach ROTC because I want all my, my cadets in the class at one time and they need to be there. 
I have to understand that, all right, this cadet has a um, class in this, um, has, has this major, has this major, and I have to make sure that I um, sequence our schedules accordingly from the MS1 through the MS4 levels to ensure that our classes, our, our cadets can be in class. And so a lot of times that means that you're teaching classes multiple times during the week. Wow. And, and you were successful. You were very successful at, as a PMS. What was the, the, what was the key? How did you define success and how did you get it? So for me, I defined success was, um, I had lines of effort. Um, so, uh, five different lines of effort that I have, and I'll, I'll only cover some of them. Um, so one was ex, uh, exposing my cadets to what the army was all about. Um, and I did that and I was fortunate in this regard cause I was close to Fort Lee, but there's other areas that I was able to do this as well. So like, for instance, um, going to Fort Lee, I was able to, I would reach out to the basic training or the AIT drill sergeants and I would have them come to um, Virginia State and we did some um, basic, we did some uniform uh, classes and things like that. So the cadets knew, I mean, we had NCOs there, but it was good for the, the cadets to engage with the drill sergeants to kind of learn the importance of wearing their uniform, wearing the uniform properly. We were able to take our cadets onto Fort Lee and they were able to do PT with some of the um, the units there. So they got to see what their privates were experiencing at AIT. So now when they get ready to go to their fort, their first duty assignment, they know what kind of PT their their privates or not their privates, their 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 private first classes and, and things like that are doing at AIT and things like that. So wanted to be able to do that. So we were able to do that from the lens of them being exposed to drill sergeants. They, they got to see that part of the army. They got to see what the, the PT and the physical training and the training requirements that the, the soldiers at AIT were doing. But also at the same time, I was able to link up with a buddy of mine who was a battalion commander and they had uh, military balls there. So I was able to take a number of my cadets to a military balls. So they got to experience the military tradition of going to a military ball. Um, so being able to do small things like that was critically important. Um, some other things that we did was um, I was able to take my cadets to, to the AUSA conference. I mean, here I am a lieutenant colonel, and I had never been to the AUSA conference. And so we were able to get, um, every year I took at least 15 to 20 cadets up there, and they were able to see all the different floor displays. They were able to engage with senior leaders from four stars on down, being able to have those small conversations and take pictures. And that, those are just things that a lot of cadets don't get the opportunity to do. And I knew that was important because one, I wanted them to be able to have that experience and that exposure to senior leaders, but also I wanted to see, hey, here are a lot of the systems that the Army has, both from, a hey, these are the systems that you're going to probably in, engage when you get ready to get into the Army, but also at the same time, now when these cadets who are special, um, seniors and juniors are in the program, now that they can go tell their, their freshmen and the sophomores or they can tell some of their, their peers on campus, like, man, I did this, this is cool, I got to experience that. So it was a, it was a, this is what your profession is all about, but also we are able to use that as a recruiting, a recruiting tool as well. And they loved it. Um, and the other things we got to do was you had Fort Lee. Um, they had they had rigor school there. So they had an airborne simulator. So we were able to coordinate. We went there and we had our cadets be able to learn how to pack parachutes and execute the airborne simulator for cadets that had never desired to be airborne. After they did that, it's like, sir, I'm going to go to airborne school. And so one of my former cadets is now she's coming back from Korea and she chose for Bragg because after that experience, she knew that she wanted to be she wanted to be an, uh, a paratrooper. And so now she's getting ready to, to PCS to Fort Bragg and she's looking forward to going to, to, to airborne school. And so those are experiences that um, that I was I was intentful of doing 
to make sure that they kind of got to see a lot of the things that the Army had to offer. I mean, things like taking cadets to the Army 10-miler. And so I took a number of cadets to be able to do that and to be able to um, come together as a team and, and run that. But also at the same time, we had some team building events that we had up there in D.C. as well. And so experiences like that, I wanted them to understand that, hey, um, these are some of the things that the Army has to offer. But also at the same time, you got to be comfortable with engaging with senior leaders. And will they engage with a lot of three stars and two stars and all kinds of stuff? Absolutely not. But I wanted their experience to be unique. Um, so I was very, very purposeful in making sure that they were able to do that. And it worked out. That's that's very, very cool. Sharing your your, your passion, but also helping them to build trust in themselves and in the army and, and what they're walking into. Uh, that's that sounds very, very cool. And so. You had a, a great experience there as a PMS. Uh, you served as the XO for 6th uh, Brigade ROTC. Um, and then it comes time, uh, it's the end of, end of 21 years of service. Um, talk me through that decision and uh, where you're going next. So, yeah, um, a difficult decision. Because uh, like I said, things that went well as a professor of military science, I got selected for battalion command and um, made the tough decision to, um, to turn down battalion command. Um, and so ironically, people asked me, they said, Hey, why did you do it? Um, do you regret the decision? And I, and I was like, do you regret anything that you did leading up to that? And I tell people, no, I said, I, I don't regret it. Um, because everything I did in the army was not to get selected for battalion command. I did it because it was important, um, for the success of the organization. And that did not rely on me being selected for battalion command. So I don't regret anything. Um, because at the end of the day, that's what we do. We are responsible for stewarding the profession and we are responsible for taking the organization from one point and, 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 and leading it to the next level um, through our leadership. And so it, my goal was um, to do that and getting selected for battalion command uh, was, a, was a goal that I had, but uh, my motivation for doing the things that I did in the organization that I was a part of was never to get selected for battalion command. And that's why I did the things um, that I did. I chose the jobs that I chose um, because if my goal the entire time was only get selected for battalion command, I would have not have turned down some of those opportunities I had earlier on in my career. Um, so that was a difficult decision, but it was an easy decision. Um, it was one because, like we talked about before, it was, it was, it was a family-based decision. Um, I was a professor of military science for two years, and um, that is typically a three-year assignment, um, but I left a year early. Um, when I was there, when I was serving at CST one summer, uh, the brigade commander for 6th Brigade, and I was in 4th Brigade at the time, um, he was looking for it, and the XO position came available. And um, Hunter Army Airfield is an hour away from my hometown, Brunswick, Georgia. And so I had not been close, stationed close to my family since I was a company commander. So it had been more than 10 years. And so I was like, it's, it's time for me to be somewhere nearby where the boys can be able to spend time with their grandparents, not only my dad and my side of the family, but my, my wife's side of the family. So it was a tough decision leaving the job that I loved being a professor of military science. But again, I, I did it because I wanted to um, be close to the family. And we were going to do that for two years, knowing that at, well, turning down battalion command that I was going to end up retiring. And so coming here for the two years was I, I could have um, come here for a year and dropped my retirement shortly after I got here. But that wouldn't have been fair to the organization. They weren't going to bring a officer here. They shouldn't bring an officer here just for me to turn around and drop my retirement. So. That was never on the card. So um, while I could have retired right at 20, I didn't want to do that because that would have meant I would have been here for a year. And part of that would have been transitioning. 
And so sign up for two years and um, have enjoyed every bit of this EXO job. I couldn't have asked for a better position because um, it's allowed me to slow down a little bit. It's allowed me to be able to take my boys to school. Um, and while some people sit there and say, okay, yeah, you take your boys to school, but that, that's, that's big. Um, because for so many years, um, going to doing PT and the constant deployments and the constant field problems, you miss out on those small things. And those those thirty minute decision, those thirty minute conversations that I had with the boys, taking them to school, that was huge. Um, because they're at that stage now, they're growing, and they and I want to have those conversations with them. They want to have those conversations with me. And so being able to do that in this job um, was um, that that was just very enlightening. And something that I didn't know that I needed until I was able to slow down in order to do it. And so that was that's been one of the biggest rewards of, of this assignment, but also um, being able to engage and, and make an impact with a 39 PMS. As I go from being a PMS in 4th Brigade or RTC to being an XO working with 39 PMS is here in 6th Brigade. So being able to take those lessons learned that I had from a professor of military science, being able to have the relationships or being able to work that that extrovert that I have in order to um, solve problems and make things a little bit easier at the brigade level for those PMSs and being able to to be that experience piece for my new boss um, who had not served in ROTC before. So that was all those things that being able while leaving a year early was was a challenge. Um, it was definitely the right decision, both from the family perspective, because my boys have been able to see my dad a lot since we've been here. They've been able to see um, uh, their grandparents on the other side a lot since they since we've been here. Um, but that, that was one of those things that allowed me to slow down. And as an infantry guy, sometimes it's very, very difficult to slow down because we're always going, especially in a lot of the assignments that I was in, we were always going, always training, always in the field. And so, um, I, I just realized, and, and, and it's one of those things that I've kind of done while I was in the army, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of people, even when I turned down battalion command, obviously the army, they found somebody to replace me in that battalion command in Alaska. Um, but no one can replace me as a dad. And so that was, those are things that I've always kind of kept in the back of my mind that my job is as, as a parent is first and trying to balance the army and family is, is critically important. And then um, at a time you have to realize that when it's time to make time for the family. And so I, I will always agree when people have said, because um, I asked a number of years, hey, how do you know when it's time to retire? And people said, you'll know. And I couldn't agree more. Um, and I definitely learned. It's like, I mean, during this time, I realized that, yes, it's time. And so um, I don't have any regrets turning down battalion command. I don't have any regrets um, retiring um, because me retiring doesn't mean that I'm not going to um, finish or leave my commitment to continue to do the profession. I still have a desire to work with our ROTC students. I still have a desire to work with college students. So I will continue to do that even, even in my new career. Um, after I leave the Army, I will still engage. I will still, if they ask me, if they have me to serve as a motivational speaker at high schools, I will do that. Or talking to JRTC uh, programs, I will do that. Um, I will continue to um, engage in, in um, students who are desiring to go to, to, to West Point, serving as a field force officer. I will continue to do that. And the good thing about being serving both at West Point and serving at ROTC, I have experience in both. And I understand that not every cadet, every, not every student wants to go to West Point or needs to go to West Point. And then um, and there are people that don't want to go to ROTC, they want to go to West Point. Um, and so being able to um, answer the questions for the students that want to go to ROTC and answer that and put them in, right, in contact with the right people or answer the questions for those that want to go to West Point, being able to answer that and, and put them on the glide path for that, 
that is going to be my biggest attribute, um, being able to meet students where they're at and not trying to convince a student that needs to go to ROTC to go to West Point and not someone that wants to go to West Point to go to ROTC. Um, ask them what they want to do, um, why they want to do it, and then make sure that I do everything I can to help them make that decision and, and, and make it easier for them. And, and, and to your point about uh, what's next, so um, like you mentioned, there's, there's a, a couple offers out there. So we are still in the, um, the negotiating phase right now, um, and it's, it's going to be a tough decision. I think we'll know here um, very, very soon what that decision looks like. Um, but there's a couple officer, uh, officer, offer, excuse me, between being with Amazon or uh, doing consulting. So um, those are decisions that we kind of have to um, kind of pray about and then make a decision again that's best for the family. But um, knowing that um, Amazon is out there um, and knowing there's opportunities to serve as a consultant as well um, for a big consulting firm, um, those are just opportunities that I don't uh, take for granted. I've been very, very blessed to be put in those positions, and I'm glad that people reached out to me and offered them to me. Um, but at the end of the day, we're going to have to make the decision that's best for the family. And uh, wrapping up this uh, this discussion, I know you will. I mean, you've shown it throughout the, uh, your career and in your time at, in, in the military and at West Point um, that you're comfortable making uh, hard decisions, even when it's a little bit ambiguous. Uh, Tony, again, thank you for your time. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap this up? No, like I said, I, I just, I, I think, um, I thank you for doing this, Joe. I thank you for telling, allowing us to tell our stories. I've been inspired by our classmates that have already told their stories. And hopefully my, my um, interview will inspire somebody. Um, and and I, I'm thankful for West Point. Um, I did not know going to West Point how life-changing that experience could be from just the experience and the opportunities I've been given because I'm a West Pointer, um, whether I knew about it um, and, and those, those opportunities unbeknownst to me. Um, and then the opportunities I've been able to go back to West Point and, and uh, mold and, and work with the future leaders as a TAC. And then from that understanding that a passion that I have is serving with young adults. Um, and that paid forward um, to be able to go serve as a PMS. And so there are decisions that we make that um, make huge, huge decisions and, and they're life altering. And not only my decision to go to West Point has not only altered my life forever, um, but at this point in time now, um, it's also motivated my boys. Um, one of them wants to go to Air Force Academy, one of them wants to go to West Point. Um, and so even if they decide not to do that, um, the fact that they are looking at that now as options, is that makes me feel good. Um, but if they decide to do something completely different, I will always support them. Um, but I know um, that West Point will always be um, have a special place in my heart, um, both the opportunities that afforded me as undergrad and the op uh, opportunity uh, afforded me for graduate school. And then both of my boys were uh, born at West Point. And so uh, when I look at um, the success that I've been able to achieve and hopefully the success I'm able to achieve in the future, um, a lot of it stems from West Point. I'm eternally grateful for it, and I will look and continue to seek to pay those um, lessons forward. Um, and I'm looking forward to anyone, uh, helping anyone in the way I can. And I thank you for this opportunity to tell my story. Well done. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please give us five stars and follow our podcast. It helps us gain visibility and helps us share our stories.